Our Father, we're grateful that you have allowed us corporately and as individuals to come together for worship this morning. We come hungry, we come needy, and again and again in your mercy, you feed us with your word and you feed us with your holy sacrament, and we are grateful for both. And this morning, Lord, as we press on in our study of the Old Testament, we ask that by your mercy and by your grace, you would open our minds and our hearts to perceive and to understand those things that are in your law. And we know, Lord, that if any clarity happens today, um, either for those who are here to learn or for the teacher who's teaching, we will know that it will be because of your kindness and your grace to us. And we ask these things and we pray these things the only way that we know how. In the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, come on in. There's, there's room. Um, so we're, we're trying to do a bit of the impossible over these next few weeks, and that is give an aerial view of the Old Testament. I think when we're done this morning, um, it will become probably more laughable what we're trying to do. I, I won't even get out of Genesis today. Um, but that's okay. We'll, we'll put it into fifth gear after this. But Genesis is quite foundational, I, I believe, both to the theology of the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, but it's also foundational to the, to the theology of the whole of the Old Testament. So we'll spend some time here, and then we'll probably go into warp speed or, or do something uh, creative and interesting, I hope. But I'm, I'm still in Genesis 1. I meant to get there last week. Um, I wanted to read this to you. I gave you a little hint of this before. This is from, uh, let me make sure I have the right area. This is from the Enuma Elish, uh, which some of you may have read before. It's an Akkadian epic myth, probably from the early part of the second century BC. So we're talking about the old Babylonian era. You have the the Neo-Babylonian era that comes in uh, the sixth century BC, Nebuchadnezzar and his boys. Um, But there was the old Babylonian empire as well that we're talking about. In the Bronze Age, um, early 2nd century B.C., some sort of date this particular creation epic, the Enuma Elish, to that time. And the Enuma Elish, uh, some of you have read this, and it is fascinating. I don't always know what to make of it. But the Enuma Elish is the, the Babylonian uh, tradition of how the world was created. Every, every, every ancient civilization um, or most of them, at least that we know of, had their myths helping their people understand how the world actually came to being, and it tended to be some sort of cosmic, um, some sort of cosmic battle between between gods. Um, so we see this for here in the Enuma Elish. It's a battle between Marduk, the Babylonian god, and Tiamat, this female god. So this is how they believe the world was created. You'll, you'll like this. Um, so, and uh, Marduk uh, turned back to Tiamat, whom he had bound. And the Lord then trod, that's the Lord being Marduk, then trod on the legs of Tiamat. With his unsparing mace, he crushed her skull. That's lovely, isn't it? When, that's actually worse than I remembered. I'm sorry. Um, when the arteries of her blood had severed, the north wind bore it to places undisclosed. On seeing this, his fathers were joyful and jubilant. They brought gifts of homage, they, they to him. And then the Lord paused, that is Marduk, to view her dead body. 
that he might divide the monster that is Tiamat and do artful works. So this is how the world's created. He just killed Tiamat in a not very nice way. And now he split her like a shellfish into two parts. Half of her he set up and he sealed it as the sky. Right, So Tiamat's just been cut in half. Half of her becomes the sky. And then he pulled down the bars and posted guards and he bade them to allow not her waters to escape. I mean, it, and then it got, kind of goes on. Well, it's kind of it's a nice firelight, you know, sort of sipping wine reading. Um, <laughs> I mean, this is, this is the way in which um, the ancient Babylonians, in a shared kind of myth within the ancient Near Eastern world, understood, understood the creation of the world. It was a cosmic battle between gods because every nation had their god. Marduk was the Babylonian god, and he went to, to, to battle with Tiamat. He overcame her, he killed her, he cut her in half. And in this sort of bloodbath between the gods, this debate between the gods, this fight between the gods, the created order is established with the underlying sort of theological motif being Marduk is the great god who overcomes all the others. He's the Babylonian god, he's our god. And this is Genesis 1, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Those seven words that start Genesis chapter 1, seven words in Hebrew to emphasize the completion and the perfection of what God had done as the Creator. And then we move into the seven days itself of creation. Seven words. There's a lot of symbolic artistry going on here in Genesis 1 1 reveals to us that God is the creator now I don't want to kind of get into too into too many details about um, you know the, the Hebrew text that I don't want to bore you without or, or, or use it kind of as a um, will to power thing but the, the, the word here for create is a Hebrew word bara to create there are other Hebrew words that are creative words like yashar to form to fashion something um, human beings can yashar. Human beings can create and form things. Um, someone asked J.R.R. Tolkien, it's actually a very interesting question they asked him, are you a creator? I mean, some of you have read The Hobbit. I'm in the middle of this with my boys right now. We're reading The Hobbit. Some of you know the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Really, I don't, I, I mean, I hope this isn't, I don't get giddy over those, but, I, you know, the Lord of the Rings trilogy. I mean, do you realize, I mean, Tolkien created a world I mean, a language system. I mean, it's incredible what he actually did uh, from a kind of mythic perspective. It's, it's a, I mean, it does, uh, not, I'm completely off script now, but you know, Tolkien never really was jazzed about C.S. Lewis's um, fiction. He kind of thought it was a little B-minus, actually. Um, and if you compare sort of what Lewis is, and I, I like that stuff too, we read that to our boys too, but if you compare it to the sort of grandeur of what's going on in the Lord of the Rings, it's just, there's really not much comparison. I mean, this is a whole world that's going on. And so someone asked um, Tolkien, are you a creator? And as a good Christian thinker, Tolkien replied by saying, no, there's only one creator. I'm a sub-creator at best. I mean, that sort of taps into, I think, this particular Hebrew word, bara, that to create only God in the Old Testament is predicated with that verb. Only God does bara Only God is the one who creates. 
So Genesis 1-1 is a kind of a titular hedge of the whole of, of, the, of the creation narrative here in Genesis. It's, it's a kind of intro. It's a kind of title. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the, and the, and the world and the, and the earth. He created these things. He spoke them into existence. And now we're going to move on into the second verse and begin to see some of the, um, some of the issues that were going on that demanded this kind of creative power from God. Verse 2. The earth was without form and it was void and darkness was upon the face of the deep. The Tahom, this uh, kind of primordial deep, this um, fearful thing that was out there, this what we might call the primordial chaos was there. And the Spirit of God moved, was moving over the face of the waters, over this deep. Form and void, again, I don't mean this to be kind of a Hebrew lesson, but form and void is a fun a Hebrew collocation. You've probably heard it before. The Hebrew there is tohu wavohu, which is meant, I think, to rhyme and be kind of fun. When God looked at the world at this point, it was tohu wavohu. It was formless and it was void. Um, some of you may know Robert Alter's translation of the five books of Moses. I don't know if any, some, some of you I know have engaged these. Now, Alter has done some hard work to try to at least allow some of his English prose and translation to reflect some of the idioms and prose of the Hebrew language itself. So when he translates this, translate this, he says, and it was weltering and wasting. Kind of double play on the W sound there. Weltering and wasting. I mean, Alter's pulling off something pretty impressive there, actually. Tohu wavohu. So much so that this notion of tohu wavohu, formless and void, um, becomes a kind of leitmotif. It becomes a kind of red thread throughout the prophets, especially Jeremiah. So that when Israel later in its history enters into this realm of idolatry and sin and sets themselves up over against her God, this language is ready made for the prophets to say, what you're doing in your setting yourself up over against God, in your following after other idols, what you're doing is going back to tohu wavohu. You're going back to chaos. And we're about to see that whole reality of Israel's history elect, elected by God, set apart for God, but then enters into a long and torturous unholy history as they set themselves up over against their God and then go back into this chaos. That whole narrative is kind of on display for us in this primeval history of Genesis 1-11. to How does Genesis 11 end? And we'll get here in a few minutes. Genesis 11 is the famous Tower of Babel, where you have the whole world trying to make themselves in God's image by building this tower that they can then, by their own achievement and their own human ambition, work themselves up into the heavenly realm. And if we learn anything about God in the Old Testament, one thing we learn for sure is that God does not like it when humanity exalts itself over against Him. He doesn't like that. He comes in as a great tree feller and He cuts them down. And that's where we go in this primeval history from the ordering of all things. I mean, think about this. Genesis 1 and and then chapter 11. There's formlessness and voidness. There's emptiness. There's chaos. 
And now God is going to speak His bara word, His creative word. And out of that chaos, the cosmos begins to be formed. It begins to be shaped according to the power of His Word. But then we get to humanity and Adam and Genesis 3 and the fall and sin. And all of, the saints, all of a sudden, we're back in the mess again. So you have Genesis 1 and Genesis 11 sort of forming these envelopes on the primeval history of cosmos, chaos to cosmos, and then back with the Tower of Babel, and all the languages are messed up, and no one can understand one another. And what are we back to now? We're back to chaos. And this is that kind of theme that I think you'll begin to see building throughout the whole of the Old Testament. That God the Creator, who by the power of His Word can take those things that are tohu avohu and bring order to them, and symmetry to them, and purpose to them, is uh, on an effort, is on a long journey to engage humanity to bring things back to order again because of the disorder of sin. I mean, one can see that really as kind of the larger motif and understanding of the Old Testament as a whole, from chaos to cosmos to chaos with God's relentless, redemptive pursuit of His people to bring cosmos back in again. And we see that ultimately in the person and work of His Son. Now, I, I don't know if you... There's some fun stuff here, and, and we don't have a lot of time to do this, but you know the six days of creation. In verses 3 to 5... We have light that's formed. And then in verses 6 to 8, we have the firmament that's established with the sky and the seas. And then in verse 3, I mean, on day 3, we have the dry land and vegetation. There's a fascinating little literary thing going on here um, in the text. So that day 1 and day 4, day 2 and day 5, and day 3 and day 6 line up with one another. So that days one through three are the tohu, right? That that's no form. And then days five, four through six are the fixing of the bohu part. And that is uh, without with the voidness of it. So there's no form. He brings forms. And then later he brings things to uh, fill in the void. So you have the light. This is getting complex. I can tell by looking in your face. Um, you have the light in verses three through five. But then, for day one, but then the lights themselves, the stars, the sun, the moon, that's on day four. You had the firmament on day two, sky and seas. But now on day five, you have the inhabitants of the sky and the seas that are then being displayed, fish and birds. And then you have the dry land on day three with on day six, now the inhabitants of that land being created. Land animals and humanity, which is the pinnacle of God's, of God's creation. It's quite beautiful. I don't think I, my explanatory powers weren't really in full, full view there. But I think it's fascinating to see this relationship between the days literarily within Genesis chapter 1. But what is the larger thrust here? The larger thrust is that God is the Creator. He's the Creator. He's not to be confused with His creation. Yet, God determines Himself to be included, to be involved with His creatures. And Genesis 1, at the beginning of the Pentateuch, tells us something very important, and that is, God is the Creator. And how does He create? Unlike 
Marduk in the battle with Tiamat, where he splits her in half and sets her apart, and he's kind of huffing and puffing as he gets all these things done. That's not how the God of the Bible set up over against competing gods. That's not how our God creates. He does so by the effective power of His Word. Fiat Luke's. Let there be light. And then what's the next phrase? I mean, this is one of the powers, I think, of the, the kind of terse character of the narrative here. And God said, let there be light. Next phrase, and there was light. No sort of onslaught with Tiamat, no cutting her in half, no sort of figuring thing. No, it's just, and God said it, and there was light. Um, this, is, uh, this really leans against, for you and for me, any notion of a kind of deistic understanding of the world. And that is God sort of set the world onto its course according to some, some standard of natural law. And He now steps back, removed from the created world, observing these things working according to their own natural law. That's really not the theologic of Genesis chapter 1. I've said these kind of things to you before, but it bears repeating here in this particular context. What is it? that keeps the Gulf of Mexico and the Atlantic Ocean from swallowing Florida, according to Genesis 1. When God, by the power of His Word on day 2, separates the sea and the dry land, and He does that by His own powerful, effective Word. What is it that keeps Florida from getting swallowed up? It's His Word that does that. We read this as well in Colossians 1, that Jesus, we're talking about Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus our Christ, is the one who is both the creator and the sustainer. The old Reformed theologians had the notion of creation continua, continual creation. That is, Jesus, by the power of the Spirit in relationship to His Father, is in a continual act of supporting and sustaining this creation by the power of His Word. So yes, we can bank on it that the sun is going to come up tomorrow morning and the moon might come out whenever it does. We can bank on those kind of things according to a certain kind of understanding of the natural world. But a proper theological understanding of that is, I believe, look what Jesus did again this morning. Look what He did. There comes that sun up one more time. It's amazing. Look at the colors in those skies. My parents happen to be here this morning. And I can remember, so I'm on my better behavior. Um, but I, I can remember one of the things that my father used to say to me as a kid. He kind of has a little bit of a romantic art, art side to him. You know, looking at the Tampa, Florida sky on a sort of a sunset and looking at the colors in the sky and saying things to me like, you know what, I don't think a human being could pull that off, right? Um, that, that's the right instinct, I think, when we look at the natural world around us. Not to think, and again, you're getting me this morning on these matters, not to think that by the powers of our own rational minds that we can look at the natural world and kind of build up from that to an idea of who God is. We, we have to have God speak to us in His own self-revelation to understand who He is as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as the Redeemer. That's what we need to save us. But because we, and I'm including us here, but because we are those who are marked as the redeemed, we go out into the world and we have now a robust theology of nature. Um, this will kind of reveal my lack of piety, and I'm embarrassed about this, but I, uh, How Great Thou Art is a hymn that I sang so many times growing up in the kind of Baptist world I did that it's, it's not my favorite anymore. Um, but but it's, a nice, it's a good hymn. I hope, well, I hope that didn't marginalize somebody. I'm sorry. Um, wonderful hymn. 
Um, but there's that there's that verse in there. Went through the woods. I always thought, boy, this is kind of strange. Like that, this is in the middle of how great thou art. When through the woods and forest glades I wander, right? When I hear the brook and feel the gentle breeze, you know this this verse in how great thou art. I mean, there's something right about that. There's something right about recognizing as we're out in the world around us. When you look at Red Mountain one more time, right? When you sort of take I-59 up through Gadsden and go up into the Mentone area and go to Little River Canyon, there's something there that witnesses to the glory and the grandeur of our God, who has deter- that God who created that stuff, who has determined Himself to be involved in the particularities of your life. That's the blow-your-hair-back part. That God who spoke and mountains pushed through the ocean, and established themselves. That self-same God is the God who has stooped low to us in the person and the work of His Son and said, I'm not going to allow the chaos to take over. I'm not going to allow the chaos to be the final word in this created order because of sin. Cosmos will reign. And that cosmos will be identified in the person and work of My Son and those who are known by Him. It's a very, very powerful thing, I think, to recognize that the God of Genesis 1-11, to and then when we move into the patriarchal history, that God is transcendent. He is not to be trifled with. I mean, ask those who were there at the Tower of Babel. And I know this is the hard part. Ask the people pounding on the ark of the, Noah's Ark's door. Ask them if God is one to be trifled with. He is not. We learned this and talked about it a little bit last week. God is not necessarily safe. Yet we also recognize that that transcendent other, that holy other, that mystery who both fascinates us and causes us to be fearful at the same time, that we find refuge from that self-same God in His eminence, the one who is our shepherd, the one who is our friend, the one who has stooped low to us in the person and the work of His Son. Genesis 1-11, to you know this. You get into Genesis chapter 3 and you have the fall. Then you get into Genesis chapter 4 and it's sort of like Steinbeck's East of Eden comes out. Actually, kind of goes the other way, but here you have it. Um, and then notice this. This first genealogy. And if, if you've read the Bible enough to know, and some of you are doing this Bible in a, in a year thing, I commend that to you. I've, I've tried that multiple times to my own um, discouragement. But good for you. Hang in there. Um, <laughs> But uh, you know this. Um, you know, the, the places that your eyes can tend to glaze back is the emphasis that the Bible tends to put on genealogies. I mean, nine chapters in Chronicles of genealogy. I mean, Spurgeon was famous for saying that you know you can preach the gospel from those genealogies too, and yet you know he wasn't real quick to try to do it too often. I think right? so there's just some hard there's some hard bits. The first genealogy. In, in, the, in the Bible, as we have it in our canonical shape, is really what one commentator, I think his name is Dempster, said is, is really an anti-genealogy. It's Cain. Genesis chapter 4, verse 17, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch, and he built a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. And then to Enoch was born Irad, and Irad was the father of Mahujael, and then Mahujael was the father of Methushael, and Methushael was the father of Lamech. Now, you know what happened here with Cain. 
And there's something literarily going on quite fascinating in Genesis chapter 4. At the beginning, you have Cain who murders Abel, and he plays a little bit of cat and mouse game with God when God comes to have him give an account. Where is your brother? That haunting question. Am I my brother's keeper? And then God sort of helps Cain along. Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Right, so here, you know, Cain is kind of playing. He's, he, he, whether he's ashamed or not, we don't know, but he's not forthcoming about this. But now listen to Cain's great grandson, Lamech. And Lamech said to his wives, Ada, Ada, and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Hearken to what I say. I have slain a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech seventyfold. So we go from a kind of cat and mouse game with God about the first murder to now Lamech actually composing a song celebrating the victory of his murder. But what's happened? We're in this downward spiral within after the fall in Genesis chapter 3 where sin is doing what sin does. And by the way, for some of you who fiddle around with the classical world and read Aristotle and Plato, I'm trying to get into some of this myself. For some of you who know these things and know them better than I do, there is something very significant about the biblical worldview over against, for example, Aristotle's goal for happiness, eudaimonia, as the goal of human civilization. And do you know what is missing in all of these accounts that the Bible puts front and center? A robust doctrine of sin. Sin. The reality of the human heart to turn in on itself and then to consume itself. And the reality of the human heart to turn toward our neighbor and to make ourselves our own neighbors and consume them too. That's the horrific story that we see here in Genesis chapter 3 with the fall as in it just, as it breeds into this more chaos. Then we go into the flood and then we have Genesis chapter 11 uh, with the Tower of Babel. That's what we're forced to see as the God created and then sin, the entry of sin into the world is what brings chaos again. And the rest of the Bible is a wrestling with that particular reality, the reality of sin. We cannot downplay it. I thought about, I was talking about this with my students this week in the class. I don't know what people do who sort of blush, and I don't like it either, okay, but blush at the doctrine of sin when it comes to the Bible or, or the necessity of the, to, the atoning work of Jesus to deal with that in some way. In other words, the sin thing has got to be dealt with in some way. And we can talk a lot about various theories of the atonement, and I think multiple metaphors probably get at it. But the point being, sin's got to be dealt with. I don't know what you do with the whole of the Old Testament. You've got to just sort of lop it off. Just toss the Old Testament in a bin somewhere. If you don't have a robust doctrine of sin, it's at the core of it all. is sin. And the reality of sin being really, and I'm taking this from Paul here, a kind of apocalyptic reality, a personality, not just the bad things you and I do, but this alien force that's almost personified, that's in this cosmic battle with God. Who's going to win God? The chaos or the cosmos? That's the battle that's going on. And it's dramatic. It's Tolkien-like. 
if I can sort of get at it. Tolkien, it's, a, it's a cosmic, mythic battle. An epic battle between God and sin. And who's going to win? Is the chaos going to win? Or is the cosmos going to win? It is one of those most powerful scenes, isn't it? And I've said this before, but it's worth repeating here. That powerful scene in Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion, um, where Jesus falls under the weight of His cross and His mother comes running to Him and her face and His face are about, what, six inches off the ground. And, and He looks up to her in His very sort of medieval sort of look there at that moment. And, uh, and what does He say? It's a, it's a beautiful interpolation, I think. It's not in the biblical narrative, but it's a beautiful interpolation from Revelation. I'm making everything new. Everything new. I mean, that's when you see Jesus on the Via Dolorosa heading toward Calvary, this is God declaring definitively and finally all the way this theology that we're having back in Genesis, the cosmos is going to win. I'm making everything new. I'm the creator. And the flip side of that reality of me as creator is that I am a redeemer. And my redemption my atoning work for humanity, that spillover reality that's not just going to help people get saved, although it does that for sure, but it's also Colossians 1, reordering and reconciling the whole cosmos, the whole world, is being made right again by the blood of our Savior who is dying on behalf of humanity and on behalf of God's world. He's making all things new. So what we see going on at Calvary has its kind of theological substance all the way back in Genesis 1 to 11 in this primeval history. The ordering of the world, the speaking into it, the making it new, the making it a a cosmos, sin coming in, bringing its own deleterious effects on the world, and then God's relentless pursuit to elect a particular people to be the means by which He would then bring cosmos back into the world. And that's where you get to Genesis chapter 12. Right? You leave the primordial history, the primeval history, and then when you move into Genesis chapter 12, I'll just read this to you very quickly and then I'm conscious of our time. So we've just come from Genesis chapter 11 and the Tower of Babel. And now we come to Genesis chapter 12 and it's the grand reversal. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your house and your father's house to the land that I'm going to show you. Go there. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name so great that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who curses you, I will curse. And by you shall all the families of the earth bless themselves. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him. And Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abraham took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brothers, and all their possessions which they had gathered. Verse 6, they passed through the land of the place to Shechem, to the oak of Morah. Verse 9, they went uh, to the mountain on the east of Bethel. And he built an altar to Yahweh there, and he called on the name of Yahweh. And then Abraham began to journey on still toward the Negev. So what happens here as we move from the primeval chaos of Genesis 1 to 11? And now into the patriarchal history that begins with Abraham. This is God's move to reorder things and make things new again. This is God's move. And how is He going to do it? He's going to do it by setting His affection 
on this particular man, Abraham. Do you have a question about this? I do. Why? Why him? I mean, there is, I think, something fascinating from a theological perspective that here, Haran is probably located in that old Babylonian region. And Abraham is called on to leave Haran and to go to the place that God will show him. And the book of Chronicles ends with God calling on exiled Israel out of Babylon again to go back to the land that he he had set apart from them. So I think there's something very interesting from a kind of bookend standpoint of Genesis and Chronicles that's going on with Babylon and the land. But why Abraham? Does it say anything here about his virtue? It doesn't say anything like he did about Noah. Noah was a righteous man and God said his effect. None of that. He said, God called Abraham. Don't know much about his past, don't know much about anything. And God told him to go. It raises so many questions for you and for me that really the narrative of the Bible leaves unanswered. I mean, honestly, if someone did this today, what would you say? He's crazy. That's a crazy person. And God came to so-and-so in Mountain Brook and said, get your wife and your, you know, your car and Start heading south through Chelsea and I'll let you know where things, you know. It's like, I mean, it's craziness. It's crazy. And yet here Abraham hears the word of the Lord and really at the heart of the whole of this narrative is, Abraham, are you going to rely and trust in my, prop, in my promises and in my grace? Because what are the promises? I'm going to give you a land and I'm going to give you descendants. I'm going to give you a land and I'm going to give you descendants. And those two big motifs of land and descendants become the thread by which really the rest of the Old Testament is to be understood. Land and descendants. I'm, and relationship. That covenant relationship that God establishes with His people. Land and I'm going to give you a land. Well, there are challenges to this in the narrative. What land, when Abraham died, did he own and possess? The burial plot of Sarah. That's it. This is why Hebrews 11 said, And Abraham went out by faith, believing in the promises, even though he did not see them necessarily fulfilled. There was a challenge to that promise of the land. And there was also a significant challenge to that promise of descendants. The first one was Sarah happened to be past the age of childbearing. Genesis 18, I love this scene. This is a great scene. Here, here they are under the Oak of Mamre, and these three visitors come, and it's like, mm, what's going on with these three visitors? Then all of a sudden, one visitor begins to speak in the first-person voice of the Lord Himself and tells Abraham, you're going to have a son. And what does Sarah do? She chatzachs. That's what she does. She laughs. And, and the Lord says, well, you may laugh now, right? But we'll see later. And then she has a baby boy named Isaac, and they name him Yitzhak, which means laughter. It's a kind of fun play there. It's this God's laughter. It's God's big cosmic joke on the devil. We can put it in an altar, right? It's this big cosmic joke. That whole stuff in Genesis 1 to 11, here's the way in which I'm going to play that. See this old woman, this man, right? I'm, I'm, I'm going to make a great nation out of them. It's, it's, it's humorous. It's the kind of thing that shows us the identity and the character of God to move forward His purposes by means that don't seem to make sense to human rationality and reason. It's just how He rolls. That's how God works. So here Sarah has a baby and it's Yitzhak. That was hurdle number one. That's a pretty big one. And then God comes to him in Genesis 22. Abraham doesn't know this is a test. We do as as readers of the narrative. Abraham doesn't know that. And God tells him to go and to sacrifice his own son. 
This is that's a heavy chapter. I know it. And here you go to the place of Moriah, which is located according to Chronicles at actually Mount Zion in Jerusalem. So we have something going on here with the temple and worship. And Abraham raises his knife. And what is it that he says again and again as Isaac peppers him with these questions? We got fire. We've got sticks. Where's the lamb? Jehovah Yirah. Right, you know this. Jehovah Jireh. We, I used to say growing up. Jehovah Yirah, which we always translated as the Lord will provide. And that's a fine, fine rendering. But Ra'ah is to see. Literally, it's here, the Lord will see to it. He'll see to it. He'll make it happen. And lo and behold, Abraham is about to plunge the knife. You know this story. And God comes in and calls it off. What's the point of that narrative? What's the point of the test? The point of the test is, it seems to me from the biblical narrative, the point of the test is, Abraham, are you going to trust and rely on my promises? Are you going to do that, Abraham? Are you going to believe in me and what I said? Because what does Abraham say that really kind of, he's not burying the lead in this story. What does he say? He says to his servants, my son and I are going to go to worship. And we'll come back to you. How, when, what, we don't know. But Abraham believed God and believed God according to his promises and to his word. This is where we get into in Genesis chapter 12. God is going to bless the nations. Concentric circles are going to move out from that covenant with Abraham to the nations surrounding him as we see God now move the chaos back into cosmos by the election of this man, Abraham, and the establishment of his people. Okay, let me pray and I'll let you go. Father, thank you for our time together and thank you for the power of your word to create and to redeem. You speak, Lord, and things happen. And we know, Lord, in our own stories that you speak into the chaos of our own lives and you bring us cosmos, you bring order. And not necessarily, Lord, that we feel ordered because often we don't. But we do know, Lord, in hope that you are making all things new. And even the disorder of our own lives now witnesses, Lord, to the true and certain hope that we have that all things will be made new. In your Son's name we pray. Amen.